I know last week is a very long time away now, probably. You probably even remember what I spoke about last week. <laughs> it's maybe a good thing. So I want to remind you a little bit about where we were and, and uh, some reflections I'd like to share with you this evening as a way of moving forward with this topic that I introduced last week around views. And last week I was sharing with you some reflections of hopefully showing how uh, we can get so limited by views that arise in our minds, especially when we get entangled with them. And and you, you might remember I gave you some of these images. For example, I started with the story of Ananda. Ananda, early in the morning, hanging out in the hot springs. And that wanderer comes to question him. And it's all in this backdrop of this wanderer, uh, Kokonuda, is so lost, entangled in views, he can't see the person in front of him. He can't actually see that it's Ananda, someone he, who he respects. And I appreciated that aspect of the story because I feel like that's what happens when we get entangled, when I get entangled my, with my views, is I can't see what's in front of me. I can't uh, really come into contact with the person that's in front of me. And I also shared with you that image in that teaching from the Zen Master Dogen from his essay, The Genjo Koan, of to really truly be filled with the Dharma is to remember that something is always missing, namely that your view is always limited. And that image that was given is you're out in a boat in the middle of the ocean and it looks circular, but that's just one view. It doesn't mean that the, the ocean is circular. It's just what our eye can see at that point. And hopefully what we begin to understand through the Dharma is how uh, views are always limited. And then I also mentioned to you how the Buddha also encourages us to take actually up some views, to utilize views, to move towards freedom. The view of that our actions have consequences and the Four Noble Truths. And this week, I, I want to take a step further with this topic of views. And I, uh, what I'd like to do is I'd like to share with you some reflections around a very particular view that we uh, very easily our minds get entangled in, that the Buddha spoke quite a bit about, about uh, disentangling from. And that's this, uh, this view of that there's a fixed sense of self behind experience. And it's really these teachings around anatta or not-self. And I'd like to begin just by defining this term so, we're, so you're clear about what I mean when I say uh, a fixed sense of self or this fixed view of a self and what I'm referring to. Uh, one way of seeing it is it's this sense that I'm sure all of you have. You have a sense of agency and who's, who, that sense of agency feels like it's me that's doing it. Or a sense of continuity. Mm-hmm. I grew up in Colorado, and that's the same person that's sitting here right now. And there's a feeling sense of that. And so from that sense of agency and sense of continuity, which also is in the sense of self, which I want to include, is a sense of identity. Uh, kind of those characteristics that, the, that we utilize to define our, ourselves individually and also collectively. And I'm sure you've seen it in your meditation. A thought arises and it feels like you're the one who's thinking that. This body here. Oh, this is my body. It's not your body. It's my body. And it has a sense of being mine. So this claiming of experience. And the Buddha really uh, spoke a lot about how when we get entangled in the sense of self, it's so confining I love how John Ruskin put it. He said, when a person is wrapped up in themselves, they make a pretty small package. <laughs> right? That's what happens when, when we get wrapped up in ourselves. There's, it, 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 we make this small package. It's confining. And, and the Buddha is inviting a, a different sense of how experience unfolds. Uh, to put it simply, it's kind of like uh, this the example of a seed. 
that you plant a seed and then eventually there's a tree that grows out of it. But there's not some kind of unchanging unit underneath all of that. It's all process. It's all a changing process. And we're trying to get that same sense with, with, our, with our own experience. The other thing that I want to uh, share reflections with you on as well, though, is that a, a sense of self, like a, a identity, is a really useful construct. And part of our job is to have a, a, a way of knowing how to skillfully utilize it. And it's a, a, to me, I think it's an important aspect of also ethics. But that will be coming a, b- a bit later. And to help clarify really the, what you could say, the Buddha's project, I'd actually like to go back to Dogen and that essay, the Genjo Koan, and to share with you yet another image, because I think it's, a, a, again, a, it may be a helpful image to get a sense of what this not-self teaching is, a, is about. So he gives this example. He says, when you ride in a boat and watch the shore, you might assume that the shore is moving. So I want to stop there. Some of you might have had this experience when you're in a boat, maybe on a very smooth river, and you're just kind of, have you had that sense of like, just the, the scenery is moving by, and you're as if still in a way. I remember being on the Green River in a canoe and having the sense that here is the, the shoreline and everything moving by. So he's talking about that. You, when you ride in a boat and watch the shore, you might, you might have this experience that the shore is moving But when you keep your eyes closely on the boat, you can see that the boat moves. So really simple. When you you recognize what's going on more accurately, you realize that it's actually the boat that's moving, not the shore. Similarly, if you examine experience, if you examine the myriad things with a confused body and mind, with confusion, with delusion, you might suppose that your mind and your nature are permanent. Yet when you practice intimately and return to where you are, when you return to actually what's going on right now, it will be clear that nothing at all has an unchanging self. What I appreciate about this example is that it's such a simple example. And, and I want to keep it that way. It's, it's simply just getting a, a more accurate understanding of what's going on right now. Just recognizing, coming back to this phrase that Carol's been using, to recognize accurately what's going on. Because that's all that's going on with this sense of self is that we, we're a bit confused. We actually think the shore is moving. We actually think that there's some fixed sense of self behind experience. But when you cl- look closely, that's not what's going on. The boat is moving there's an, always this, this change that's happening. This is really the essence of the teaching of not-self. Simply to recognize accurately and just this simple turn as if you were in a boat and to notice that. The other thing I, I want to, to, to point out with that is just that it's not some kind of mystical, mysterious thing that's going on. It's just a shift of attention. The other thing I want to to point out about this teaching on not-self as we go further with it is that it's not about replacing one view with another view. So what do I mean by that? It's not this process of, oh, well, I used to believe in a self. I used to believe in an identity, but now I've come on retreat at Spirit Rock and now I've become a good Buddhist and now I just have this different belief. I believe and I believe that there's not a self. So this isn't some kind of belief system. This isn't some kind of dogma or even a doctrine. This is a process about just recognizing accurately what's going on right now. And this is what I find so brilliant about the Buddha is that he stays away from taking a philosophical position. He stays away from getting entangled in views. 
and I want to share with you just some examples of how he's not situating this, this teaching of not-self as a doctrine or a dogma. And just uh, two, two examples from the Pali Discourses. And the first example is around this really actually quite interesting character that arises that is in uh, quite a few uh, discourses by the name of Vachagota, who is a, a wanderer. And so the commentaries go, this is what the commentary says, so, so the story goes, is that he was a Brahmin and he was an, uh, an expert in uh, Brahminical learning. But he got to the point where he, feel like, he felt like with all his study, he wasn't getting the answers of how the world works, the way the world was. And as a result of that, he became really curious about the Buddha's teaching. And he actually asked him, there's many discourses where he's asking him all kinds of questions because he's really wanting the answer. He wants the view, the explanation the the perspective that's going to explain everything to him. He's looking for the answers to life's questions. And maybe some of you have noticed that there's a part of your mind like Vachagota. I know I I do. I, I I can I know this drive that can arise in my mind of I I want to have it figured out. I want the answer. I want to know. Please give me the explanation. I get it. So when you hear the story, you can imagine that it's this part of yourself that's coming to ask the Buddha. <laughs> what Vajagota asked the Buddha. So one day, Ananda and the Buddha are hanging out and uh, Vajagota comes up to the Buddha and basically asks, Please tell me, blessed one, is there a self? And the Buddha remains silent. So, of course, he asks the next obvious question. Well, is there not a self? And the Buddha remains silent. And Vajagota walks off. (laughs) And after that, after they've been hanging out, Ananda basically says, Blessed one, what's up with the silence? (laughs) I mean, here, here Vajagata is coming to ask you these questions and all you do was remain silent. Well, what's up with that? And, and the Buddha says, well, Ananda, if I were to have, have uh, answered either, either of those questions, if I would have told him that there was sel- a self, then we obviously know that that would have misled him because we can see that there's so much suffering that comes from thinking there's a, a fixed uh, self behind experience. But I would be uh, uh, confusing him just as much if I was to tell him there was not a self there too. Because that would, basically he was saying, in general terms, that's just a view too. That's just a doctrine. That's not going to lead to his awakening. And then uh, another place. This is from um, the second discourse in the Middle Length Discourses. And the Buddha is going through... Uh, how we can get lost in attending unwisely, unskillfully to our experience. First goes over how we attend unwisely, and then he describes the views that arise when you have attended unwisely to experience. This is what he says. He says, when the practitioner attends unwisely in this way that he had just gone over, these kinds of views would arise in this practitioner. The view... Self exists for me, arises in, the, in this person as true and established. Or the view, no self exists for me, that arises in the, pract- in the person as true and established. Do you hear this? Both, both are off. The Buddha is not talking about simply having a view that there is no self and taking that stance. It's not about replacing one view with another view, getting rid of the view of a self and now taking on the view of a not-self. It's about recognizing accurately. It's about noticing what's going on right now. This is a practice, not a philosophical stance.
And so we're going to get to that a little bit later. I want to come back to the importance of a self. But this is going to be, it's going to be important to get back to because this is what we're doing here, hopefully, is making this into a practice, not a philosophical view. Before I get into that, though, I want to point out the importance, though, of this construct of a self. And I think the, the Buddha also has really seen that this can be uh, very valuable in how we navigate the world is, is uh, the importance of identity, the importance of a sense of self. As long as you utilize it skillfully, just like the images I gave you from the last, last talk, like the kusa grass. If you hold it tightly, it's going to uh, 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 tear your hand. Or the simile of the raft that I shared with you. Where the Buddha says, you know, when, when somebody gets to the other shore, they're no longer need to use the raft any long, longer. The raft has a certain purpose. As, as it was said in that discourse, in the same way, practitioners, I have taught the Dhamma compared to a raft for the purpose of crossing over, not for the purpose of holding on to. In the same way, can you utilize a sense of self? Can you utilize a sense of identity for the purpose of crossing over, not for the purpose of holding on to? So let's go a little bit more deeply in this. And again, another clue that comes from the uh, uh, Potapada Sutta in the, uh, the long discourses of the Buddha. Again, another really great character. I love the characters that sometimes you come across in the, in the Pali discourses. This is a conversation that happens between um, Chitta, Chitta, the elef- elephant trainer's son, and the Buddha. And Chitta was a very interesting practitioner. Sometimes when I hear about his, his uh, path, it, it makes me feel good or makes me feel okay about how difficult it, it can be. It said that Chitta, he got um, ordained six times. And each time after he got ordained, he left the robes. <laughs> so he dropped the practice a lot. <laughs> and then uh, he you know, ran away from the practice. And then the, the seventh time he got ordained, he became fully enlightened. Which I think is just so cool, <laughs> especially being here on retreat. Just to imagine, like, you're, you're doing so much better than Chita probably. I mean, has anyone left the retreat six times and maybe gone down to Fairfax to get a beer or anything like that? <laughs> I mean, maybe somebody has and now you're feeling a lot of shame. That's not my point, but <laughs> you're doing great. You're actually, you're, you're staying here, right? You just need to stay a little longer like Chita and full awakening. Voila. So I, I gain inspiration from Chita, the elephant trainer's son. And he and the Buddha are having this conversation about the usage of the word self. It's actually a little more complex. And Chita, to me, when I read it, sometimes he has a kind of a convoluted mind. It can be difficult to follow. They're talking about different kinds of selves, but it really centers around this word self. And uh, the Buddha says to Chita, Chita, listen, these are merely names, these different kinds of selves that you're talking about, expressions, turns of speech, designations in common use in the world, which the Tathagata uses without misapprehending them. I, I feel like here's our clue. Can you utilize a sense of identity without misapprehending it, knowing the utility of it, and not getting in, in, entangled with it. And I have to say that this is such a fascinating area, just this, this interplay of seeing that there's no self behind experience and being able to utilize a sense of self. And, and so when I read this next stuff, just remember, I'm still working on this stuff. <laughs> but maybe together we can have a deeper understanding. And one way I hold it that I find helpful is it's uh, one frame that we can find in the teachings, and you find this kind of flower more in, in Mahayana, is this, uh, this idea of the two truths, or uh, conventional truth and ultimate truth. And the use of identity is really a way of using conventional truth. And noticing that there's not a self behind experience is a, is a, a quality of ultimate truth. 
And this is the important thing about the teaching around ultimate and uh, conventional and ultimate truth is that ultimate truth is not somehow more important than conventional truth. Both are essential. If ultimate truth starts to become more important in our practice, it's actually incredibly dangerous. And vice versa, if we can only see conventional truth and not uh, seeing uh, ultimate truth, then there's a kind of hindrance that, that's there. So ultimate doesn't mean better or more truthful. They're intertwined. And this is especially important, I think, around this, this topic of, of self and not self. As I was saying, it, identity is important. And just think about it in t- terms of uh, psychologically as human beings. One of the, the processes of growth that we're involved in as we grow up is forming a sense of identity, forming a healthy sense of identity, a stable sense of identity. And this actually helps for the unfolding of the practice because then there's a kind of stability for these other realizations to, to take place. So individually, it's very important. And it, it clarifies other things. It, it can clarify differences in terms of this whole world of, of identity and honor differences that can get overlooked and also to bring out uh, clarity around similarities. It's identities a helpful thing, uh, just on a basic level. For example, I... Uh, in my Zen days, I knew a, a guy who lived in a commune, and they had a couple rules. Two of the rules is you could not use, um, you could never use the word I or anything associated with it. So you could use I or me or mine or myself when you were talking, and you couldn't use the word no. <laughs> it was like a total ultimate hippie commune. <laughs> He said it was completely crazy and dysfunctional. <laughs> Sometimes I think that's what happens if we get too literal about this, is dysfunctionality and craziness. A little bit further about the importance of identity. Uh, this was about uh, 10 or 15 years ago. I, I became really interested both personally and just also to learn more about it, about identity development models. And there's a uh, researcher and professor by the name of Dr. Janet Helms that he was in the early 1990s that she, she and among other people, there was a number of people looking at this, that were proposing different, um, different models of racial identity development. And so they were looking at um, people of color uh, racial identity development models and black identity development models and white identity development models to get a sense of how de- identity gets formed around this and ho- how it can get formed skillfully. And I think one of the things that these ad- identity development models really um, uh, showed was that through developing in a skillful way uh, a racial ident- identity in a skillful way, what it does is it helps undermine, it helps undermine many things like um, the internalized privilege that we can walk around with and be blind to. The internalized oppression that can weigh us down. And yet if we don't see that, that, that as she says in one of the titles of her book, race is a nice thing to have, we, we can end up in some ways uh, uh, being unskillful in the world. This is an essential realm to develop an identity, especially if we're interested in ethics, which is the basis of what we're, of, of what we're doing here. Race, it's a nice thing to have. It helps dispel so much harm out there. And just like on that commune, when we don't see this kind of facet of identity and uh, many facets of identity, if we don't see them clearly and don't develop them clearly, then it ends up like that commune. It ends up crazy and dysfunctional. And one uh, specific thing around this, and this is, I think, a good example of utilizing but not being entangled with 
And that's um, the construct that comes with, with an exploration a lot of times of race of, is the construct of, of whiteness. I think before I knew anything about the importance of racial identity development, it felt like it didn't fit. And then waking up to the dynamics that happen around being seen as white is essential. So sometimes people feel like, oh, that doesn't fit for me. But it's such a helpful construct if we want to live an ethical life. To actually take that on, to see the kind of privileges that come with that and the kind of blindnesses. And are there problems with that construct? Yeah, there's all kinds of problems with any kind of construct and identity. But can you utilize it in a skillful way yet not get entangled by it? And this is just one example. I think there's many constructs in terms of this realm of identity that we can see how we benefit from or not benefit from that shape us or don't shape us and getting a, a, a deeper sense of that. So identity, it's an important thing on, on many different levels. This is just one small example. So back to not-self, this, this, this teaching on not-self. If it's not a doc- doctrine, how can we understand this? And what I, was, what, what I was proposing to you is how to understand it is as a practice, a practice of recognizing accurately. And uh, again, to share with you a passage uh, from the Pali Discourses from the Buddha that I, I feel like is pointing to a practice. And this comes from the discourse that I was sharing with you last week. It's, uh, what's it called? I think it's called the, the Simile of the Water Snake Sutta. And it's the, the sutta that has the, also the, the simile of the raft in it. It was what he says a little bit after the, the simile of the raft. Bhikkhus, or more broadly for our context, practitioners. A well-taught noble disciple who has regard for noble ones and is skilled and disciplined in the Dhamma, who has regard for true practitioners and is skilled and disciplined in the Dhamma, regards, let's say, experience thus. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. So again, one skilled and disciplined in the Dhamma regards experience, all of experience. Thus, this is not mine, this I am not. This is not myself. Here we have the practice. Here is the practice to recognize accurately. Here is the gateway to see that the shore actually isn't moving, it's the boat that's moving. And I want to point out that you're already doing this here. Each time, each time that you see a thought is just a thought, what's implied in that is that this isn't mine. This isn't me. This is not myself. When there's an experience of hearing and it's just hearing, right now, just hearing, and that noticing that that activity right now is not me, it's not mine, it's not myself, is doing the practice of undermining a fixed sense of self. It's that simple. Or it can get a sense of noticing when breathing that sometimes there's a turn. It's no longer I am breathing, but it's just this body breathing. Or sometimes you might start out with the concept of, oh, I'm walking, but then there's a feeling sense. Actually, no, that's not right. Actually, the shore isn't moving. Actually, it's simply the body moving. It's the body walking. There's no me here. Oh, I can see this more accurately now. It's that simple turn that happens. I think Greg shared with us the instructions that the Buddha gave to Bahia in his first Dhamma talk that I want to remind you, remind you of, of this training that the Buddha encourages Bahia to do. Bahia, you should train yourself thus. 
In reference to the scene, there will only be the scene. In reference to the heard, only the heard. In reference to the sensed, only the sensed. In reference to the cognized, only the cognized. That is how you should train yourself. When for you, there will be only the scene in reference to the scene and the heard into the heard, then, Bahia, you will see that there is no you in connection with all of that. And when there is no you in connection with that, there is no you there. And when there is no you there, you are neither here nor yonder nor between the two. This, just this, is the end of stress, the end of stress suffering. Hearing is just hearing right now. Seeing, the activity of seeing that you can be aware of right now, it's just that. There's nobody there. It's not yours. It's not me. It's not mine. It's not myself. And sometimes you can get a a sense of that right now in the hearing, in the seeing, in the sensing the body as I'm speaking to you. It's just, it's experience unfolding. Whereas it said, empty phenomena rolling on. Even with thinking, in the cognizing, there's just cognizing. You might have noticed this at times where just thoughts arise and they pass away. And it will come back to this because sometimes you can have the sense that it's just a thought. And other times, which may have happened maybe a couple times where you're just like lost in thought and it's all about me. (laughs) Kind of becoming, becoming somebody in that kind of thinking, which we'll get to. But to notice that when cognizing is just cognizing. This is, this is doing the practice of not self. This is recognizing accurately. This is seeing the shore is not moving, that actually the boat is moving. The Buddha gives us a structure, which for some people it's confusing, other people it's, it's helpful, the structure of the, the five khandas or the five aggregates, the five heaps that he places ex- a momentary experience in. And I just want to go through them because they, he was offering them as a way of seeing these places that we cl- claim as me or mine or myself. And through the practice, we can get a different sense of this. So the first one, form. I think a simple way of understanding that is the body. And sometimes I like to start off with these as getting a sense of as not a meditator. And so what I mean by that is just a simple recognition that it's so easy to get the sense of this body here, it's my body. <laughs> it doesn't feel like your body. It does feel like my body. <laughs> and it feels like it's the same body that I walked in here with, that I'll walk out, here, uh, out of here with tonight. But on this retreat, you might be starting to have a different experience of this body. That you, it's not a something fixed that you can claim all these changes changes of sensations that are coming and going this whole this whole fluid flow of experience just with the experience of sensation no way this can be me or mine no way that there can be something fixed and definite there and noticing that again and again and again or the realm of vedana feeling tone again sometimes so easy to create a sense of self around this who am i I'm, I'm the one that doesn't like raisins in my oatmeal. <laughs> That's me. <laughs> and we define ourselves around this. That's actually an unpleasant experience for me. For me. And that's who I am. I tell stories about it all the time when I teach. What happens when you look at that more closely? Oh, interesting. Tasting. Oh, tasting. Oh, and it's unpleasant. It arises. Oh, some aversion. There's aversion. And then it all passes away. It's not me. It's not mine. You get to see that again and again. Or perception. When we're just hanging out in the boat and it looks like the shore is moving, it's like the feeling with perception is, who is it that names that those sound like frogs out there? Oh, those are frogs. I think they are. <laughs> that's me. That's, that's me who's, who's naming things. 
Really? You might notice at times, I think this is a really fascinating thing to do, is you hear something and sometimes you get a small image of it. Like you hear something and then there's an image of a bird. Or sometimes the word of a certain bird comes up, oh, crow. Is that really you? It's just an experience that's arising and passing away. It's not me. It's not mine. It's not myself. Again, recognizing accurately. Volitional formations, the next piece. Greg went over this one morning around that, that again, a, a simple way of understanding this is that about to moment intention. Did some of you explore that, that sense of intention where, where in the walking meditation, in a general sense, it can feel like I'm moving the body. Oh, interesting, attention, intention arises. There's that about to moment and then movement happens. And then the last arena, consciousness. Who is aware? I'm the one that's aware. Have you noticed that, that awareness is unconfined by any sense of self? Really such a liberating thing to get a, a feel for. And sometimes you can get a feel for it right now. There's, there's hearing that's happening. And there's a knowing of hearing. Can you find anybody there? So let's take a different angle on this. A less traditional, but I find effective way. And that's this curiosity I have around this teaching of, of the sense of the, um, this teaching of not self, of noticing the creation of a self. I sometimes use the label becoming, where it feels like you can get a sense of a certain self that's being born in your experience. And often wh- where I find this is around uh, stories. Just remember, that, and Sally might have talked about this a little bit in her Papancha talk, but I also mentioned that underneath Papancha is this sense that I, me, meanness. And I'd like to share with you a poem that I feel exemplifies this. And this is a, a poem that's written by the poet Virginia Hamilton Adair. And she used to live in Claremont, California, and she would uh, drive up to Mount Baldy Zen Center, actually the place that I was uh, a monk for uh, uh, much of my time when I was a monk, which is, you could say, feels like it's right above Claremont, California in the San Gabriel Mountains there. And every so often she would come up to Mount Baldy to do session or a seven-day retreat. And she wrote a poem about it, her experience there. And the title of the poem is Zazen. I'd like to share it with you. She begins, When I first floundered in, no one knew me, not even myself. Staggering under a Saratoga trunk. So a Saratoga trunk, you could say, for if, if people don't know that. She's staggering under her suitcase that's filled with all of these things. Okay, so so she, when I first floundered in, no one knew me, not even myself. Staggering under a Saratoga trunk, crammed with humiliations, bottled like urine samples. Nail kegs of anger, carbons of abusive letters, chemistry quizzes with Fs. Even the horse I never had. And the two casseroles left over from the diamond dip supper. No one remarked that I had brought too much. I was wearing three fur hats donated by opulent cousins, my feet encased in cement ever since the failure of the patio project, and my mouth full of barbs as an old trout. No one praised me on my appearance. The trunk fell off my back, disgorging its unusual contents at my stone feet, which also came off. The fur hats tumbled like a moth-eaten avalanche, burying a small monk. No one noticed. My sweat began to dry. I folded myself into one piece. No one. Maybe in a similar way, have you noticed what you packed in your suitcase when you came here? Did you notice what you brought in your Saratoga trunk? I mean, it's amazing the things that we bring on retreat, and I think most of them are not on the to-bring list. Have you noticed that? (laughs) 
And what I so appreciate about retreat is I'm so relieved when um, no one notices what I brought with me. Isn't that a relief? <laughs> At least I'm incredibly relieved when nobody notices what I brought with me on retreat. And there it all is. And I, and I feel like her, um, her list is so poignant about what we bring. Carbons of abusive letters. Chemistry quizzes with Fs. Wow, have you ever noticed how it's so easy to create a sense of identity around that? Oh, I'm the one that's not smart. Here, here it is. Here's the story of all the Fs I got. How I couldn't do that thing. And even more poignant, even the horse I never had. It's not only the things that we bring along that happen to us, it's also the things that didn't happen to us that can create this self that's so confining. And you can probably hear some of the confinement in that. The horse that you never had, the chemistry quizzes with Fs. Your feet encased in cement ever since the failure of the patio project. And that's the process as we begin to unpack the suitcase and you notice it's not me, it's not mine. And coming to finally see at the end, no one. And again, I just want to point out, in in some ways, this is how we give birth to a kind of self that is so confining. And, And you might notice we do this to others. One example, which is maybe... A bit extreme, but I think it, it, it points out that what happens to us and, and what we do to ourselves is I have a friend who grew up in a family and the parents had very specific ideas for each child. And so, for example, there was the child that was the artistic one. And when that uh, child got interested in mathematics, the child would literally be told, listen, you're actually not that smart. You're the artistic one. This is the direction you should be going in. And then there was the musical one. If the musical one got interested in drawing, it was like, your, your direction is supposed to go, be going in music, not in art. You're the musical one. You're no good at drawing. You shouldn't be drawing. That's not who you are. And it went on down the line. The one that, good at, that was good at math, you, you're not artistic. And there was this confinement that she was saying that, that happened on, in this family dynamic. Have you ever had that feeling when people do that to you? They see you in a certain way and how confining that is? More importantly, have you noticed how your own mind does that to you? Where there's a birth of a self. And that's why it's so cool being on retreat because you can start to catch the beginning of the birth of these selves that confine us moment after moment after moment. A lot of times I see it within the stories that arise For example, here I am, I'm fantasizing about some future situation. Sometimes I can get this feeling, you might notice a a, a craving to be a certain person in those narratives, giving birth to what I call a certain world. Uh, Sometimes you can feel it, a wanting to be the person who's liked, the story of being the likable person, or the hero, or the person who wins the fight or the argument or the self that's intelligent. Or it can swing the other way. The self that's the victim, the one that's not smart, the one that nobody likes. It can swing the other way, the funny, entertaining person. Can you notice the cravings for so many different selves kind of parade through your retreat? Or am I the only one? It's amazing (laughs) being born and dying, these selves. So confining, but just to see them. A lot of times when I notice this, I do use the the label becoming or selfing. It can also be uh, around the stories where it feels like we're not in the story. You're playing something from the past that somebody did 
Or the example I always always give is the the email that doesn't get responded to the 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 text message or the phone call that doesn't get replied to, the note that doesn't get replied to. And there then there's this thought. I know they're being passive aggressive. I know it. I knew that they hated me. This is example of it. This is what's going on. In some ways. I'm, that's a creation, that's a becoming of a kind of self because it's a kind of world that's all about me. Have you ever gotten hooked by that? Boy, that can be a rough one. And it's not even happening. Oh, becoming. Interesting. And I want to point out the whole range now. So I'm, I'm trying to give a whole range of the scene, not me, not mine, not myself, not I. From, oh, this is just a thought, to the stories that you carry out around, that, that, that you create around yourself, the worlds that the mind creates. Can you see it's all not me, not mine, not myself? From simply hearing to the big papancha. And sometimes I want to point out that, that, that sometimes the experience of really getting a taste of this can be very dramatic. Sometimes there's these big experiences around what you could call flow of really there's not any kind of sense of self behind experience and it can be incredibly dramatic. It can be, feel very freeing. At times it can be, feel, feel very frightening. There are lightness that sometimes comes with it. It can feel uh, very ungrounded. Can, a quality of that can come. But most importantly, I want to point out, it can be incredibly ordinary and drab. And sometimes that's the most important. It's the uh, Tibetan teacher, Mingyur Rinpoche, says, he says, the biggest wow is the wow with no wow. Because <laughs> then it's, it's getting integrated. And the reason I want to point this out is because we uh, can spend a lot of time trying to figure out how transformative this is going to be or how much this is really uh, uh, bringing us towards freedom. And we're usually the, the worst person at evaluating that. And it's because we feel like we have a sense of what really is leading to that and what's not leading to that. And sometimes it's around the dramatic things. Oh, if I can have some kind of dramatic change, then this retreat is going to be worth it. And I'm just waiting for that. I'm waiting for the big one that, I can, that I've read about in books that's so great. As if that's the indication of real freedom. And I want to point out that the ordinary and the mundane insights into this stuff that are barely kind of reach the radar are just as significant. This is a, a mysterious process and it's an invitation to trust the process because it's a kind of, actually I would like to share with you this poem that's entitled this, it's a kind of invisible work that you're doing here. There's a poem by Alison Luterman with that title. She begins the poem. She says, because no one could ever praise me enough because I don't mean these poems only, but the unseen, unbelievable effort it takes to live the life that goes on between them. I think all the time about invisible work. About the young mother on welfare I interviewed years ago who said, it's hard. You bring them to the park run rings around yourself, keeping them safe, cut hot dogs into bite-sized pieces for dinner, and there's no one to say what a good job you're doing. How you were patient and loving for the thousandth time, even though you had a headache. And I, who am used to feeling sorry for myself because I'm a, I am lonely, when all the while, as the Chippewa poem says, I'm being carried by great winds across the sky, thought of the invisible work that stitches up the world day and night, the slow, unglamorous work of healing, the way worms in the garden tunnel ceaselessly so the earth can breathe and bees ransack this world into being, while owls and poets stalk shadows our loneliest labors under the moon. There are mothers for everything, and the sea is a mother too, whispering and whispering to us long after we have stopped listening. 
I stopped and let myself lean a moment against the blue shoulder of the air. The work of my heart is the work of the world's heart. There is no other art. Invisible work. These striking images she gives us. Mothering. The challenge work, the challenging work of mothering and how nobody ever sees it. So important. The slow, unglamorous work of healing like a wound that heals. I so appreciate worms tunneling ceaselessly in the earth or even more important bees pollinators where would be bee right now if it wasn't for pollinators how often do you see that invisible work and yet it's essential for the transformation of this world it's essential for this world moving forward what you're doing here is a kind of invisible work on the obvious level, it's often going to be, and it will probably remain, a kind of invisible work, especially m- maybe to your friends and your colleagues and all those people out there. And it can be an invisible work to ourselves, and that's why it's so important to see how powerful it really is what you're doing. And that's why it takes so much faith and trust to continue, because it can be invisible to us. So may we continue this invisible work so that we can see deeply about how within experience, when we recognize it accurately, there's not some fixed sense of self beyond there so we can go beyond this confinement, confining ourselves and confining others. And yet at the same time, having the skill of, of utilizing a sense of self, of utilizing a sense of identity skillfully. So let's sit for a minute or two. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.